Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Memories of growing up conjure up a multitude of experiences and emotions that can linger throughout a lifetime. Christine Geary from Salt Lake City shares her personal reflections on what she calls an ordinary life. In her first book, A Heart Full of Hope, a memoir, it is a collection of short stories that detail the beauty, the heartbreak, and the complexity that emerged throughout her life. She reads the story, My Life's Purpose. I nursed a sick husband for 16 years until he left me for a better place. Together, we raised a challenged daughter to be very self-sufficient. Because of our encouragement, she has accomplished more than anyone ever thought she possibly could. I was insistent that she be everything she could be, and then some. We raised a son who, given the challenge of coping with an ill father and a handicapped sister, rose above those difficulties and became a man with great character, a man of whom I am extremely proud. When he was a little boy, I heard him tell his friends, My daddy doesn't go on business trips. He goes to the hospital. My heart broke into pieces and has never quite recovered. Perhaps seeing my family through these seemingly ordinary events is my life purpose. Sometimes I think we have to stop and rest and just let the universe guide us to where we are needed on our paths. It really doesn't take much to make me happy. The first robin in spring to make a wish upon, a penny from heaven at my feet, a perfect tiny bird's nest that has been mystically fallen from the sky and been left just for me as I walk to my car, and my dogs who make me feel serene, like when I listen to the sounds my sweet Nike makes as she sleeps and the nudging and cuddling of my little poodle Phoebe as she lies under the safety of our blankets at night. Then there is the sight and aroma of my garden and the sheer delight of being able to watch things grow and use some of them in my cooking. The look of love from my sweet husband's eyes, which I can conjure up from my plentiful memory bank, as he watched me from his chair while I rubbed his aching feet. Oh, those beautiful blue eyes that would light up at the sight of the first rose I would offer him in spring to intoxicate all his senses. There have been times in my life when I know that I have been able to create what I consider to be miracles. I have never looked upon these events as anything no one else could do. I am simply aware of and look for the signs that I know are being left for me, and then I proceed to make my miracle happen. I can be quite determined when I want something. Obviously, I don't always get what I want, but I'm sure I get what I need. I have the knowledge that I will always have enough money to share and spare. I know that as long as I am alive and beyond that, my children will never go without. I know that I will always have a few kindred spirits in my life to keep me in check. My life purpose? I don't know. I think I'm living it. As long as there are friends, family, music, flowers, good food for my table, my dogs, health, sunshine, and good wine, I will be happy. For these are the treasures that feed my soul. If you remember the Dick and Jane books, the first word we learned was look. Perhaps, with the reading of this story, you may not have to look very hard to find your life purpose. So you said there's a story behind that story. There is a story behind this story, this particular story, My Life Purpose. Um, in 2008, I went to an angel card reader, and he sent me home with homework, which I was quite taken aback at, I thought what the heck is he doing giving me homework but he said I want you to go home and I want you to write your life purpose and I I balked at that because I had never written before and it took me a couple of days but I finally I sat down and uh, put pen to paper and for some unknown reason I just began to write and it was almost like automatic writing. I couldn't stop until I got to the end of the story. I didn't read it, didn't edit it. I called my friend, the angel card reader, 
And I said, okay, I'm done. Now what? And he says, okay, let me get situated. And he did. And he, and he said, okay, let me hear it. And I read it and got to the end and there was silence. And I said, are you still there? And he said, yeah, I'm, I, I'm here. And he was obviously crying. And he said, Christine, do you realize what just happened here? And I said, uh, no. He said, you're a writer. You are a natural writer. And your words need to be heard. And that's how this book started. Um, with that one story. And then I became inspired. And I don't know how, but um, maybe it was the universe calling to me. I don't know, but... Um, just started writing stories, and I started posting them on Open Salon and received so many wonderful comments that um, I was being prompted to put them into a book, compile them into a memoir. How would you describe the collection of stories? It's a memoir, but how would you summarize all the stories, and how long did it take you to compile all of these? When did you start writing? Um, it took me about, I would say, two years, two and a half years. I have been pondering putting them into a book for a long time. And then finally one day I said, that's it, I'm, I'm just going to do it. And um, I think of these stories, yes, as a memoir, mainly as a gift for my children, and my grandchildren, I think of it as immortality that I will live on through these words. And someday a great-grandchild's going to pick this book up and say, wow, my, my grandma was really weird. <laughs> and she went through some trying times, but she came out okay in the end. But um, writing these stories was very cathartic because they are um, a collection of stories that are... They, they have a message for everyone. Everyone can identify, especially women, I would say, can identify with these stories. There are stories of great sorrow and pain, but there's also a lot of humor. And I like to think that um, they may start out on a sorrowful note, but they end up with either a lesson or a message and an on an uplifting note. And so your mother's passing at age 12. You were age 12, right? And that was such a, that's such a tumultuous time anyway, that age. And so that must have been a very significant time in your life that has continued to influence you and do you think that was a, a big part of your passion for writing? And I think that um, it's an ongoing process with me coming to terms um, with having a mother who um, did not show love, um, and it's I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> Her inability to to love um, to care and now I, I don't know what the reason was behind it but um, it has taken me on a path of, of writing a lot about that however I try not to dwell on it too much there are a few stories I left out of the book on purpose because I thought no I don't want to go there again <laughs> but it has absolutely um, influenced my life and how I have raised my children, hopefully, and a little better. <laughs> More hugs and kisses and loves and caring. And you grew up in a fairly big family, right? How many siblings? I had two sisters and three brothers, all older. I am the baby. And um, I think I was in a good position, actually, doesn't sound right to say a good position, but the best position 
for losing my mother because I was able to pretty much raise myself because everyone was older and almost out of the house and I kind of went my own way and and said no when the others said yes. <laughs> I said no to a lot of the things that uh, I think that I would have I would have been so different if my mother had been around because I would not have taken the chances that I did and become the person that I am today and I feel I'm more independent I had to forge my own my own way and I think because of that I made a lot of mistakes but I also I grew so much and I don't think I would have been able to do that if she was there because she would have held me back something that's kind of significant to me was um, when my mother lay dying her last words to me were be a good girl and I didn't think about that very much until lately uh, when I was writing a story and I thought even on her deathbed she couldn't say I love you she said be a good girl well I was a good girl but I think she should have said I love you <laughs> why do you think that was such a hard phrase for your parents and within your family my parents grew up in a very hard time probably you know during the depression they both um, both of them didn't make it past ninth grade however they became very successful people. My father became a businessman, um, and they pushed their children to the limits, and we all received college educations, five teachers, one dentist, and um, they were not given, I don't think they were given the love. So I, I just think it was a, a repetitive pattern mm -hmm. that they didn't know any better, and they just did the best they could. Your life is ordinary. In some ways, you, you were disappointed. You've come to realize that actually there are a lot of miracles in that ordinary life. And uh, can you talk about what, what does that mean an, to you, an ordinary life, and how has this collection of stories changed your impression of what that means? I think we all lead ordinary lives. I remember Tipper Gore was on a talk show once, and she said, you know, we are all ordinary people. We're just placed in extraordinary circumstances. And so I, I truly believe we're all, we're all really leading ordinary lives. Some of us more ordinary than others, I suppose. Um, but um, I don't... I don't think I've led an extraordinary life. I'm, you know, I'm not the president's wife or anything like that. But I think that we all have something to offer. Some of us don't realize what we have to offer. I think when you start meditating or just looking within a little bit deeper into the meanings of life and 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 really looking at what's around you. I think you just need to stop and think, what am I doing? Where am I going? How is this influencing me? How is this influencing my family? I think that's when it becomes extraordinary. When you look at things differently, I have a story that is called A Penny for Your Thoughts, and it's a story written about my sister Frances who died when she was 25. And in the story, I talk about uh, the fact that we wore penny loafers, and she would take the pennies out of her penny loafers, and she would hold them up and say, Penny for your thoughts. And also, and in this story, I talk about how I never, ever pass a penny by on the street because I know she sends me pennies. I just think we need to look for these things and take the signs that we need to take.
in order to forge our path. So the title, Heartful of Hope, what does that mean to you? Why did you title the book Heartful of Hope? I zeroed in on that title because we live in such trying times. And I have a story in there um, titled On Being Pollyanna. And I think too many people dwell on all the sadness, all the destruction, all the horrible things happening in the world. I do not close my eyes to these things, but I prefer to concentrate on hope. There is courage in the word hope. And we have to be courageous. And courage comes from the word, the root word of courage is heart. And so I think that's how I I developed this title. I am the ultimate optimist. Um, I, I do get down at times, that's for sure. I do get depressed. But then I have to concentrate on gratitude. And I keep a gratitude journal And just walking outside and looking at my flowers gives me hope. What do you hope that readers will get from these collections of stories? Do you have an idea of what you want people to to get from it or what you want to give to them with these stories? I would love for someone to read one of these stories and say, Wow, I've been there. I know what that's like, and it's really good that somebody else has been there too, and I can identify with that. All of these stories, everybody, I think everybody can identify on some level with each of these stories because they are truth, they're honest, they're heartfelt. They can be anyone's story. I just want... Readers just to take a little bit of of that with them. A little joy, even sadness, that somebody else has been there and has put it into words Mm -hmm. and maybe helped them. I'm not looking for praise. I just feel like I'm an ordinary person and I've just written this book and I hope it will help people. That's all. Christine leaves us as she reads from one of the stories called A Message from a Butterfly. While working in my garden a couple of summers ago, I turned around in an effort to till yet another patch of soil, and out of the corner of my eye I spotted a type of butterfly which I had never laid eyes on before. Quietly gasping in delight, I sat down and stared at this beautiful creature who had alighted atop a pot of colorful pansies. Bright yellow in color, with black-tipped wings and blue and red spots on his back, he held my rapt attention as he fluttered about, sipping nectar from several flowers repeatedly. At times he seemed to stare back, assuring me that it was indeed all right that I invade his privacy. It was difficult to ascertain who was the interloper. The butterflies we see are mostly small, white, or yellow in color, who sweetly flit from one flower to another, constantly helping to make the garden a more beautiful place. This visitor was a rare sight, and I wanted to share it. As unobtrusively as I could, I stealthily made my way into the house to announce to Daniel the arrival of this most unexpected gift. We quietly went outside And there, much to my surprise, was our welcome friend in his same spot. He seemed to gaze at us for a long time, and then, with great fanfare, opened his wings and fluttered around, much as a peacock might strut himself about. Then, sweeping around us in a large, circular path, the butterfly flew away. We were in such awe of his grandeur that we waited to see if he would return. Unfortunately, he didn't. 
Unable to erase this vision from my mind, I remembered I had received a book about butterflies for Christmas. I retrieved the book from where it had been left on the bookshelf. When I picked it up, I felt my heart leap. On the front cover was a picture of my butterfly. Upon closer inspection, I discovered it was an eastern tiger swallowtail, which is apparently not an unusual species, except that it is rare to see them where we live. A few days later, as I was on my way to the grocery store, a strong feeling that I needed to go to the library came over me. I wandered the aisles for quite some time before stopping abruptly. Absorbed in scanning books on the shelf, my hand involuntarily reached for one book in particular. As I plucked it out of its place, I noticed it was turned backward. I turned it over, and there on the cover was a huge picture of my butterfly. I began to get an eerie feeling about all of these events. I couldn't help but believe I was being sent a sign. A Heartful of Hope by Christine Geary is available online on Amazon, Kindle, and at bookstores, including The King's English and Sam Weller's. Thanks for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. And support for science questions comes from USU's College of Science, advancing the educational experience of future scientists with advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows, Information is at usu.edu slash science. Science. Questions. Radio. This honest, direct story of drug abuse was produced for a mature audience. Parents may choose to not have children listen. Welcome to Science Questions. I'm Sherry Quinn. Today's show is about the disease of addiction. Drugs including cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and alcohol can make you feel good, even euphoric. They activate a part of the brain responsible for feeling pleasure. Drug abuse in the United States and around the world is common, particularly during the teenage years. An unfortunate subset of abusers in the U.S. who use drugs can quickly turn into an addict. Alcohol is the most abused drug in the country and in Utah. It also causes more health problems and deaths than any other drug. However, it's not illegal, so treatment for alcoholism is not legally enforced. Instead, jails are clogged with illicit drug users. 85% of Utah's prison population has a substance abuse problem. Addiction often leads to criminal behavior and destroys lives. 39-year-old Abraham is an addict. I met him at a poetry slam in a coffee shop where he was reciting an off-the-cuff poem about his addictions. Why not heat it up and you'll feel better? But that doesn't happen. Words are fierce when they slither from the back of your head way back, back where it's steamy and dark, like a boil of prime induction counts, one reprisal after another, until all the coconuts are gone and the bisquick spills and it doesn't shake like frescoes over a break, a wonton made illegal, a tradition of oral words lost in the emergence behind superior crystal definition. Eye clashes with closed mashes, make heels, make strays, make displays and disobeys. The symbols don't stop. I'm out. What's the word? Ibrahim is a polydrug user, which means he will abuse just about any available drug. But he prefers crack, a smokable form of cocaine. He was smoking it while I interviewed him at his house in Salt Lake City. Crack. The pipe sizzles. That's why it's called crack. The pipe sizzles when you light it and you puff and it sizzles and it cracks. Crack is insidious in its quickness. It's a form of cocaine generally cooked in 
combined with other substances, anything from baby laxative to possibly a baking soda, a little water, a little energy. You mix it all together, you cook it down, you get a rock substance. This inhaled through crack pipe and inflammation, you know, it goes directly to your lungs. It's quicker and more seductive than intravenous cocaine use, which I was very fond of. When I can't get one, I'm doing the other, or finding something else so that I can eventually get back there to doing that. And that's the disease part of it. You're thinking you're surviving, but all you're doing is prolonging the high. You know, science is telling us this. It's, it's validated it. You know, numerous organizations and foundations acknowledge alcoholism, drug addiction, chemical dependency as disease. And the chance is so great that, you know, in somebody's circle, there's somebody who's suffering from addiction. In Utah, the most abused drugs are the narcotic opiate prescription drugs often sold on the street, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and methadone. The prescription drug abuse rate is holding at a steady high. They were the leading cause of death in Utah, with a 348% increase between 1999 and 2006. More people are killed by overdoses each year than car crashes. As a primer to drug addiction, the producers of Science Questions are skimming the surface of the illicit drug world. Patrick Fleming is one of our guides. He is director of the Salt Lake County Division of Substance Abuse Services. I'm not a proponent of legalization of drugs. I'm really not. But we've got to have a different policy in the United States because humans are going to find a way to get this stuff. What you find is there there are basically three factors to um, the types of drugs that people use. It's the availability of that drug. It's the risk to get that drug. And it's the price of that drug. And so what you will find is you will find certain people that really prefer certain types of drugs. Like you're going to have people that are heroin users, and they just, you know, that's all they want to do. They want to do heroin. But more than likely, we have a, a larger class of people, which you call poly drug users, which means they're going to use whatever they're going to get their hands on. So when methamphetamine came in, methamphetamine was cheap, and it was very plentiful. And that's when we saw everybody starting to use methamphetamine. Uh, crack cocaine was the same thing back in the uh, 80s and 90s. Heroin is out there now, and heroin is fairly cheap on the market. Abraham nearly died from a heroin overdose a few weeks before the interview. His cozy, pottery barn-style home in Sugar House still looks domestic. There are wedding pictures of Abraham and his wife on the end table next to the sage-green couch where Abraham sits and smokes. In the photographs, He looks a muscular 180 pounds with a healthy tan. Their faces are brightly lit with ear-to-ear grins. His wife just moved out to get away from his self-absorbed destruction and the drug dealers and addicts coming over every day helping him decay. Now he's skin and bones and his once thick curly black head of hair is half gone. I'm here stapled to this sofa. I'm looking at that light over there thinking about my next hit somewhere, somehow. And, you know, that's pretty much the, that's my life, pretty much, you know. I used a lot of drugs today. I drew some. Um, I think I forgot to eat and take my medication. I lied to my friends. Honesty is a big thing for me. Really, truly, it's just a irrevocable, just train wreck. Your friends say that's that? That's a scary thought. Yeah, when I'm really in the throes of my disease. Are you always in it? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's, there's no friendly passage here. It's not something you can toy with. Have I ever done anything without an ulterior motive? Have I ever done anything that was for anything other than my own satisfaction? Scientific studies reveal there is a genetic link to drug addiction. There are some drugs that are linked to certain kinds of addiction. The research is shifting the paradigm of treatment towards a combination of medicine and therapy. Drug addicts usually start out thinking their addiction is a choice, not a disease, says Glenn Hansen, director of the Utah Addiction Center. I never talked to an addict that said, boy, this is where I wanted to be. I mean, this is great. I always wanted to grow up and be a methamphetamine addict and, and lose my family and uh, have my loved ones kick me out of my house and go to jail and have my children taken away from me. And They always think I can control this. 
to start off. I'm, I'm bigger and better than the drug. And then as they continue to use, it turns from abuse into dependence and addiction, and then the drug controls them. And most of them will recognize that they've got a serious problem. They don't always recognize how to deal with it, but they recognize they've got a serious problem, and many of them don't know what to do. They don't know where their support system is because they burned their bridges in the process. They've ended up in the criminal justice system, and so they've pretty much been pegged by society that this is a bad person. And once you get that label on you, it's hard to get a job, it's hard to climb out of this hole that you've dug for yourself. I mean, nobody's made this hole for you. You did it for yourself with a lot of bad decisions. But now how do you get out? Well, it, it oftentimes it takes a lot of motivation. Some people can pull themselves out, but a lot of them can't and they need some serious treatment and in some cases they need medication. Just as much as if they were depressed and they needed an antidepressant or if they are schizophrenic and they needed an antipsychotic, if they're a severe drug addict, oftentimes medications can help. And then with good psychotherapy, you can pull them out of that and, and get them so that uh, they're clean. And it doesn't mean that the disease is gone. This is a disease that never goes away once it's happened. They've always got to be vigilant and pay attention to it because it can come back. In fact, it frequently does relapse. Back in Abraham's living room, his friend Martin stopped by. They only met a few days ago during a drug deal. Martin is homeless and living out of his car. He says he lost his job as a chef in a four-star restaurant because he often got drunk at work. Alcohol is his drug of choice. Right now he's up for taking anything and says he wants to reach rock bottom sooner rather than later so he can start crawling out of what he calls the pit. He's been paying for all of Abraham's crack fixes the past few days. They are arguing over money and their addictions. But, you know, when they say in recovery that, you know, if you've been down and out and using for 25 years, think about it, it's going to take at least that much to fix yourself. You've got to heal from the drugs and the cocaine, particularly, is about anywhere from a year to two years. The brain's got to squeeze itself back through holes that camels don't even fit through. So I acknowledge that I lied this weekend. Well, I lied fine, up and down. But listen to me, please. It's important. Back. No, it's fine. It's I know. Okay. okay. <laughs> but fine. understand, if it's if it's that we need to settle, then you gotta wait for a bit. You know, please stay here. I don't. You know, and, and I, the, you're, you're doing this thing. I gave you so many options to do I know, this. No, but I don't even have a job at the moment. But let me tell you, if I do get a job and I responsibly hold the job, right, that's got to be some merit towards my intention of doing right by you, and that's the best I've got right now. Because I need to get a job in order to feel sane a little bit instead of moping around, sitting here, sucking myself through a tube, okay? Trying to get you out the other day. I know, but you can't do it. Look, i got to take that initiative. I know you want to help, and I want to be helped. I want to be rescued. All you have to do is but, ask for help, man. Right. But right now, I've given up. I'm hopeless. I feel despair and nothing but, okay? Anger, angst. I don't care what you want to call it. Okay. You know, I'm sitting here a, a wick lit at all five different ends. Drinking is like... I can't drink. What about I mean, now? Like at this point, you know, the past couple of days, I'm fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not abusing it. I have a beer that lasts me like an hour. But I, when I get into a mode, yeah, I can't stop. You know, like I drink to just soothe. You know, I'm not out of control. Like drunk, I, I can function really well. But every now and then, there's like, you know, every four months, I get on a tear and like I forget how much I'm drinking or I mix up what I'm drinking and like, I, I get too drunk, or I can't function like. Like a beautiful restaurant, loaded, and I like pass out in the middle of it. You know, if I don't even remember what I ate, you know, crazy. Abraham and Martin's behavior is not surprising to Utah Addiction Center Director Glenn Hansen. 
what addiction really is is pathological decision making. So these people make very bad decisions. And you can see this, not only the way they live their lives, but you can see it neurobiologically. You can see it by doing psychological testing. There are these tests that we can give that have nothing to do with, with deciding about drugs. You don't even mention the word drug in the entire test. You just let them make decisions. Let the brain process information, and then you measure it. You have ways of how fast did you do the test and how accurate were you? And we find that people that have drug addictions, they are slow in these tests and they make a lot of mistakes when they do the tests. And we know that that's because there are certain brain systems that aren't working together very well. So there is a biological basis in these people. And then when we put them out in the real world where we expect them to make very complicated decisions, process a lot of information, and think in terms of what is the consequence of what I'm doing, not consequences just right now, but what's the consequence next week, next year, next decade, they don't do that. It's almost as though we've turned the clock back and we've turned them into adolescents. It's like going to a teenager and saying, you do this now, you know what effect this is going to have on you when you're 60 years old. <laughs> you're wasting your time. So the brain doesn't process that, and that's what's happened in addiction. The, the, the disease itself has really crippled the brain's ability to, to use its executive functioning, and they make bad decision after bad decision. And, and, and our assessment is, well, people who make bad decisions are bad people. For an addict, it can cost anywhere from $100 a day to $1,500 depending on the drug and the dose. The more an addict uses, the more required to sustain the high. Abraham says he has spent up to 10 grand a week on drugs. He's had numerous jobs, but can't hold on to them, and either quits or gets fired. In one of his last jobs, he was a paralegal. Did you sell your TV today? Yeah, I did. I pawned it. Took a short-term loan on it, <laughs> like 5,000%. You know, <clears throat> just stay high for three, four hours. How long do you need to stay high for? Forever. There's never enough. With that, just that drug or any? Uh, yeah, any. The saying goes, once an addict, always an addict. Doesn't matter what mood-altering substance you pick up, the consequences will be the same, invariably, documentably, palpably. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it to see, because I can understand something with my head but it takes forever to reach my heart. You know, that's what all the chemicals and the using and the constant behavior, you know, that's what you end up with. Nothing. Outsider in. It's pretty bleak, but we still go for mouthfuls of it at every opportunity. No, it's never enough. That's that's the tragic, frightening, hideous power. No, it's never enough. What do you all I care about right now is drugs. That's all I care about right at the moment. Just want to stay high. Don't want to ever come down. Scientist Glenn Hansen. Motivation is a critical part of treatment. If a person isn't motivated, no matter what you do with them, you're not going to be successful. Is the motivational system gone? Is the support system gone? As I said, these people burn their bridges. Families just get to the point where Enough is enough. You've stolen from me. You've lied to me. You've hurt your children. You've abused them. As far as we're concerned, we want nothing to do with you. Well, they don't have any support system, even though we try to treat them. Where are they going to go? What are they going to do? How are they going to start all over again? So whether or not they've got a support system can be very, very critical to these people. But the real respiratory failure occurs when the family starts to die. All the world is you, and there they are being sucked right in. Hostages. The disease expresses itself in loss. It expresses itself in self-imposed slavery. Insanity, definition. You know, I keep, keep getting high and keep living this lifestyle and keep seeking it and going back to it, and what does it get me? The same damn same results. does not change. And yet, even in the face of that, I'm looking for gobs and gobs more. One sunny spring afternoon, 
Abraham invited me to go along with him to meet his drug dealer and said I could record the meeting. I agreed. We drove to a motel near the train tracks in North Salt Lake. Abraham called the dealer from his cell phone. He came out from a room, got in the car, and we drove off. Bienvenidos. Bienvenidos. How are you? Como se amigo? How are you? Yeah. Yeah. How are you, man? Salud, everybody. Yeah, salud. Yeah, I don't care, man. I'm no. crazy. I don't know. I don't tell me what to do. Oh, drop me off here. No. <laughs> I'm not dropping you off, baby. You're stuck now. Yeah, All right, so I'll think. Abraham introduced me as a reporter. He was acting really crazy in anticipation of a crack fix. Driving too fast, even the dealer was nervous. At this point, I was feeling weak from a growing pit in my stomach. I was too scared to ask questions. Making money? No, man, not today, boy. Friday's big day for you. I know, but I don't have to start today in the morning, my brother. Sorry. We stopped at an upscale hotel in downtown Salt Lake City, where the dealer got out and went into a room. Afterwards, we went to Abraham's house, where a slew of addicts showed up to meet the dealer. scene at Abraham's house. I stopped by to check on him. He was weak and going through withdrawals from all the drugs. Mm, up. God. I just, just everything is making me sick right now. Just sick. I just feel awful. Cold sweats, chills. Hmm. <coughs> <coughs> I can't decide whether I want to live or die. I mean, that's the thing I don't understand. You know, I feel so messed up and screwed up and mentally and emotionally. You know, and if I really wanted to live, wouldn't I make every effort to do something different than what I have done? Why is it that I don't? Abraham called the dealer for help. When he arrived, he popped a golf ball size full of crack in Abraham's mouth looking at me as if I did not know what he was doing. Only 20% of addicts will recover, 2 out of 10 says Patrick Fleming, director of the Salt Lake County Substance Abuse Center. He says there are some individuals who can quit cold turkey. Others will age out of addiction and quit midlife because of legal risks, and they have too much to lose. Another group will stop late in life, 60 or so, due to the physical effects, such as hangovers. To recover, addicts have to essentially retrain their brains. Ibrahim says his family has spent over $100,000 on multiple treatment centers to do just that. But Fleming says the typical 30-day stays aren't enough, and that's why early intervention and long-term talk therapy is important. It's also less expensive. The public treatment plan he recommends 
is $17,000 a year. When we treat somebody, we have to be consciously thinking about what has happened in their brain. How come certain people just don't seem to get it? Some people can go through treatment and, and do it the first time. Others have to go through multiple times, and their treatment is very long-term. Well, it's because the structure of the brain has really changed. And if you've got somebody who is, for years and years, has been using drugs, a lot of the behaviors they learn while they're using drugs are aberrant. They're not there because the wiring is not taking place in a very healthy way. And so what we have to do in treatment is we have to go in there and we have to actually help them relearn a lot of basic things in life. And so right now we're just beginning to understand how can we help people change their lives? How can we use the science that's out there to help us be better at what we do and help people really improve their lives much more quickly? And when you recover, a lot of things people don't know is that the symptoms of recovery, whatever drug of choice you may have, it's a complete opposite of what the drug gives you. For instance, heroin makes you feel blissful. All the world is at peace and serene. You know, the complete opposite of that. What would you think it might be like? Aches and pains like the influenza of the medieval times. Your body cracks and aches and it suffers. Mental distraction. Obsessive thinking about the drug and how to get the drug itself. These stations all, all repeat. Relapse is part of recovery. And what our goal is to do is to say, wait a minute, the first time you went through treatment, oh, you fell off the wagon and you start drinking again and you start drugging again. You're a failure. No, you just need more of a dose of treatment. Okay? I didn't get, you didn't, your, your insulin wasn't adjusted properly. Okay? You didn't maintain your diet like you should have just like diabetes, okay? So what we do is we say, okay, let's get you back in and give you another dose. Let's give you some more skills that you need to have. Let's help you with some medications. And what happens is the, the effect of treatment is cumulative. It, it's not like they got to start at square one. So at the first treatment episode they went into, everything that happened and all they learned is the foundation to build on the second uh, episode of treatment. And it builds and builds and builds. And pretty soon what winds up happening, those episodes of treatment get shorter and shorter, and the relapses become further and further apart. But relapse is always, it's always the thing that's out there, the boogeyman that's out there lurking out there in the life of anybody who's in recovery. It never goes away. If after you've had some intensive treatment and actually were available in those sessions, rather than just sliding by... You'll hear some things that are important to know about recovery, all of which I have most generously and expeditiously ignored to date. That's why I'm here right now. It's chronic and progressive. I liken it many times to diabetes, of which I am one, right? And it's the, the survival instinct in the back brain, the, the, you know, the, the animal brain, fight or flight, instinctual stuff, primal stuff that, you know, is tied into I, I want to live rather than die. So there you are in the addictive self, this survival mechanism that's supposed to keep you alive. You know, some people get so high that they choke on their own vomit. They don't, they don't die from the high, per se. And with, with heroin addiction, Chiba, that's evil. I mean, some of the, the mortality statistics on... Recovery and heroin addiction, even in any, any period in time, 10, 15, 35 years, people die. It's a death sentence. That final person who's left is going to die. They're going to die from the disease. And unfortunately, you pick up the paper and you look in the obituaries, and I read obituaries every day. And if you look in the paper, what you're going to see is you're going to see so many people. When you start to learn to read between the lines of what they're saying, you see so many people in there that are dying so young. And, um, and I just really applaud families that will come out and will say in the obituary that 
died from the disease of addiction. Um, because what that is really saying is really saying that this is a disease and people can die from it and that they, they acknowledge the fact that the person was not a bad person. When we have accepted the fact that this is a disease and we treat it like a disease and we pay for it like a disease, I think the United States will have uh, turned the corner and a more informed social policy that we just don't have right now. Fleming says if insurance providers cover substance abuse treatment costs, they usually only cover 20%. He says addicts who don't have insurance get worse and end up in emergency rooms, at county jails, and state prisons, so the taxpayers end up paying for them instead. Fleming is actively advocating for health care reform that includes better insurance coverage for behavioral and mental illnesses. He says he's inspired by recovering addicts. If you try to lose weight sometime, and a lot of people, you know, will go on these diets and they'll try to lose weight, they can do things. But you just, it's really, really difficult to do. It's difficult to push that bag of potato chips away. It's difficult to push that ice cream away. Well, think about addictions about 10 times that. And it's really hard. And folks that are in recovery are some of the most courageous people you're going to find because every day they have to deal with being disciplined. And um, and they can be successful at that. I mean, the people that I know that are in recovery are the most spiritual people in the world. They are also the most compassionate people in the world. They're very smart people, and they're all around us. I mean, they are the they're the face of Utah. I mean, it's interesting if you would walk down the street and you know pick ten people out and and say, well, do you have anybody in your family or do you know anybody that's addicted? Um, you're going to find that about about half of them are going to say, yeah. There's my brother, my cousin, my mother, my father, me, you know, and my good friend. Um, it's, it's everywhere. That was Patrick Fleming, director of Salt Lake County Substance Abuse Services. After the interviews with Abraham took place, he moved out of his Salt Lake City home and disappeared. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Kim Shusky contributed to this program. It was produced by Sherry Quinn. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Constance Crompton. For more information, visit sqradio.org.